Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Dr. David Servan-Schreiber. David is a writer, neuroscientist, and clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. He's a lecturer in the Faculty of Medicine of Lyon in France and was co-founder of the Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. He's the author of Healing Without Freud or Prozac, which has been translated into 29 languages, and his new book, Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life, which has been translated into 32 languages and has been a New York Times bestseller. David Servan-Schreiber, welcome to the new school. Thanks for having me, Michael. David, uh, I won't pretend that we're not close and uh, close friends, good friends, uh, and have known each other for some time. So this is not a, an arm's length interview. But let me just start by saying that you are a writer, a neuroscientist, and clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And you're also a lecturer in the Faculty of Medicine of Lyon. And you co-founded the Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Uh, you've done a number of uh, other interesting things. Uh, you volunteered as a physician in Iraq in 1991 and were uh, a, a founder of the U.S. branch of uh, Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, which won the Nobel Pro uh, Peace Prize in 1999. And uh, most important, you're the author of, of two extraordinary books, the first is Healing Without Freud or Prozac, which has been translated into 29 languages. And the second uh, is Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life, uh, which uh, talks about your own diagnosis with a brain tumor at the age of 31 and how you, uh, how you both uh, treated uh, yourself medically and how you uh, found your ways to healing in many other ways. So we have many strong interests in common. But let me start with your more recent book, Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life. Uh, what is the central message for cancer patients uh, that you want people to draw from your work on cancer? Well, that's rather simple. As you said, I'm a physician, I'm a scientist, and that did not protect me from getting cancer, uh, much to my dismay, in fact, at the time. Uh, but it allowed me to not only benefit, of course, from conventional treatment that saved my life, but to go beyond that and find out everything I could in the scientific literature about what each one of us should know uh, about how to help oneself so as to prevent cancer as much as possible. And if we already have it, so as to strengthen our natural defenses against the disease to increase our chances of doing well with the illness, which is something you, Michael, have pursued for a long time through your cancer health program. And in your book, uh, there's one uh, color section uh, called Anti-Cancer Action that really summarizes a great deal of what you found in the scientific literature. Um, you have segments on protecting yourself uh, by avoiding products that contain industrial chemicals wherever possible. You have a section on diet, 
uh, eating uh, 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 primarily a vegetarian diet, a balanced diet, uh, using filtered tap water. You recommend exercise 20 to 30 minutes of physical activity a day and sunlight. You recommend meditation. And you recommend freeing yourself from feelings of powerlessness. How did you arrive at that set of life changes that you believe really make a difference in cancer? Well, I, you know, really I scanned the scientific literature to try to understand what makes cancer an epidemic today in Western societies. Why is it that it is not an epidemic uh, in some other societies, Asian in particular, but also North African and so on? What do they do differently, especially since when those people come and live in Western societies, they get the same rates of cancer as we do, so obviously they're not protected by their genes, they're protected by their lifestyle. So I try to understand what is it about cancer that makes lifestyle have such an important impact on its development. And I found out that there are some rather simple things. You know, the, the role of the immune system, for example, in uh, constantly monitoring the body for the growth of cancer cells, detecting them and eliminating them early on, um, is extremely important in limiting the disease uh, and slowing its growth when we have it. But also inflammation in the body. I found out that everything that favors inflammation, low-grade chronic inflammation, actually also favors the development of cancer. And, and inflammation is something we can have tremendous impact on simply with uh, decisions we make in how we lead our lives every day. And then I also found out that uh, tumors need to grow new blood vessels in order to develop. It's called angiogenesis. And that angiogenesis is under the control of a wide variety of lifestyle choices, again, nutrition, exercise, and stress. So then from understanding these mechanisms of how, what cancer needs to uh, escape the body's natural control, uh, and then understanding what in our, I went to uh, trying to understand what in our lifestyle has an impact on that. And then I found out a large array of studies that clearly documented how food choices, for example, can either promote inflammation, promote angiogenesis, uh, reduce the effectiveness of the immune system, or quite the contrary, support our natural defenses and ability to slow down the growth of cancer. So that was for nutrition. I found out uh, that exercise can do the same thing and what kind of exercise does that. And I found out about what type of um, stress management techniques help with that, or on the contrary, what kinds of stress, specific stresses make it worse. And I found out about environmental contaminants that can either promote cancer growth or aspects of our environment that can uh, slow it down. So, you know, it, it all came down to an equation, uh, finding, reducing the things that promote cancer and adding more things in my life that uh, can slow down cancer. You know, David, I've studied this question of healing with cancer for 30 years, uh, looking at both conventional and complementary approaches to cancer. And I have to say that your book is absolutely one of the best uh, books on this subject I have ever read. It's, um, and I think I, I've been trying to think about what makes this book, Anti-Cancer, so extraordinary in my eyes. And I think it's a combination of things. Uh, first of all, I think people learn from stories. And you know that because you tell many stories in the course of the book of many uh, different uh, people that you've known, both 
uh, famous people and people that uh, have been patients of yours and so forth. So you tell stories, which is a very powerful way for the human uh, psyche to really take things in. The second thing is that most books that endorse uh, uh, complementary approaches to cancer, whether they be nutritional or stress reduction or something else, they typically have an axe to grind. Uh, they often um, exceed the scientific evidence. But you really came at this as a neuroscientist who, uh, as you say, were you were a rising star in neuroscience as a, as a young scientist at the University of Pittsburgh. And you were really trained in a very impeccable approach to scientific evidence. And so the book has that sense about it that you are not overstating the evidence. But on the other hand, you are unafraid to say things that are outside of mainstream conventional understandings uh, that you have found to be true. And so let me just take one point on that uh, because I think it's so important. You mentioned uh, the inflammation as a key factor in the uh, progression of cancer. And you have a, a table, table three, on page 42 of your book in English called The Principal Influences on Inflammation. Could you talk a little about what aggravates inflammation and what reduces inflammation? Well, one of the key factors that promotes inflammation are some of the things that we've included in our diet in the last 50 years that never existed in, in the Western diet before that. Uh, that uh, includes uh, the huge amounts of sugar. We went from eating uh, 12 pounds of refined sugar per person per year in the U.S. in the 1900s to eating 154 pounds of refined sugar per person per year in 2000. And we know that every time we eat uh, sugar, refined sugar, we increase insulin, we increase a hormone called IGF-1, which is a growth factor, both of which promote inflammation and the growth of new cells. Now, in children, it's okay to grow new cells, but if you're an adult, the only thing that can grow is fat and cancer. And that helps promote cancer, and it helps promote inflammation. Another factor is uh, trans fats that have permeated uh, almost everything we eat that is of industrial source in the U.S. in the last 50 years. And everybody knows they promote inflammation. That's why they're so linked to cardiovascular disease, but also to cancer. And there's twice the amount of breast cancer in women who eat more trans fats than in those who eat less. And then the omega-6 fatty acids that come from soybean oil and from uh, corn oil uh, and from all the animal products. All the animals are now fed only with soy and corn. So uh, we have a huge amount of omega-6 fatty acid, inflammatory-promoting fatty acids that come from milk and from butter and from cheese and from eggs, whereas those foods before World War II were actually perfectly balanced foods that did not do that. So we didn't see the difference. We're still eating. We think we're eating the same milk and same cheese and same eggs, but they're not. They're now they've become pro-inflammatory foods. Uh, lack of exercise promotes inflammation, and one of the main factors is the feeling of powerlessness and helplessness. Prolonged feelings of helplessness uh, increase cortisol, increase noradrenaline, and those uh, not only affect the immune system but also uh, promote the growth, the uh, the release of inflammatory cytokines that help cancer cells 
uh, invade neighboring tissue and spread to remote parts of the body and to grow as into large tumors. So all of these factors, you know, food, uh, stress, lack of exercise, and, and I can add to that, uh, you know, some of the modern chemicals uh, that also have skyrocketed. Remember, DDT did not exist before World War II. Uh, the exposure to these chemicals is a brand new phenomenon in human history, uh, as uh, you've worked on for a long time. Um, and we know that some of these chemicals actually help promote inflammation as well. One thing I'm, I'm very curious about um, on your, your nutritional dietary recommendations, I believe there's a literature, I, I cited it in my book, Choices in Healing, that finds that um, not only can high animal fat uh, promote um, cancer progression, but also that total uh, caloric intake uh, is a factor. And there's a substantial animal literature that suggests that when caloric intake is reduced to the point that the animal begins to lose weight, that tumor progression uh, is slower. And uh, that was one of the things that I did not see in the book, and I wondered whether you were, uh, whether you'd looked at that literature uh, and whether you found it convincing or not, or am I missing it somewhere here? No, you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it is, there's strong animal literature about this. Uh, there's less data in human beings, and I, I have to say I, I focused a lot on what I could find in the human literature because that's the only thing that ever convinces physicians uh, and oncologists. Um, and also the whole topic of uh, losing weight uh, as a way to prevent cancer growth is, is very touchy in oncology circles, as you know, because physicians are terrified of their patients losing weight because it is often a sign of the progression of cancer. So they, in fact, when you look at the dietary recommendations of the American Cancer Society, which I do cite in my book at one point, it's scary because everything they mention is, is meant to help people gain weight which I think is, is really contrary to uh, you know, the modern understanding of the biochemistry of, of, uh, of what can help slow down cancer. Right. And uh, as you say, the, the threat of cachexia, of uh, weight loss associated with cancer, is, a, is an important and legitimate concern. Our colleague uh, Keith Block and many other nutritionally-oriented uh, oncologists uh, believe that there's an important distinction between healthy weight loss and weight loss that's out of control. And uh, Keith Block often says that if you lose weight so that you go back to your sort of healthy college weight or something like that, that that's a good thing. But if you go into free fall, uh, that that's a bad thing. And um, so I just wondered, uh, I, I respect deeply your uh, science base of wanting to cite human data. But in terms of your own thinking on the subject, um, uh, do you think that these more, um, uh, more radically therapeutic anti-cancer diets that often cause weight loss uh, whether it be macrobiotic or the Gerson diet or uh, other diets like that, um, if done carefully, can contribute to 
uh, reducing uh, the probability of recurrence or the progression of disease? I absolutely think so. Uh, I do agree with you that you know, they generally have to be done under medical supervision because you want to be careful with people whose health is already fragile when you put them through a rather radical uh, dietary regimen. You want to be careful that you know, they're not going to be missing some particular vitamins or minerals and, or I- including omega-3 fatty acids that are so important to their health. But, uh, but it, absolutely, it, I do believe that it does help slow down cancer. And, and certainly the animal literature is extraordinarily strong on, on this topic. And my advice to my own patients is, uh, indeed, if you feel better <laughs> with your weight loss, then it's probably good for you. Uh, if you feel weak and tired, that's probably not. Right, absolutely. And, and I, have to, I have to add that you know, the regimen, the dietary regimen I recommend in, in my book, I have now have a large number of people who followed it, and, and one of the most common side effects, I would say, uh, or effect of that regimen is weight loss, uh, a healthy kind of weight loss. Absolutely. And if you cut down on, on refined sugar, on... on uh, um, on flour, white flour, uh, white rice, and so on, uh, as well as the, all the omega-6 fatty acids, uh, and avoid them, and include all of these other uh, healthy foods that contain the anti-cancer phytochemicals, uh, then indeed you lose weight, but it's a very healthy weight loss. Where do you stand, incidentally, on the, the difference of opinion between our colleagues uh, Dean Ornish and Andrew Weil uh, with respect to uh, Ornish's emphasis on a very low-fat diet and Weil's preference for a, a Mediterranean uh, diet. Um, as you know, Ornish uh, has demonstrated that his diet reverses coronary artery disease, and you cite uh, his study of prostate cancer. Uh, Weil, by contrast, um, believes that the Mediterranean diet tends to be the ideal diet, even for reversing uh, coronary artery disease or uh, for cancer. Do you have a point of view about that, um, that important debate in uh, nutritional uh, approaches to disease? Yeah, I, I do. I, I would lean on the wild side. I, I believe that uh, uh, the Mediterranean diet is quite close to optimal uh, in terms of uh, reducing the sugar load, reducing the excess animal fat, um, and including all the appropriate nutrients, including omega-3 fats that help slow down and, uh, inflammatory, inflammatory processes. So I, I do have a, I'm a strong believer in a Mediterranean diet. Some of the key studies uh, have, have been done in, in uh, Europe on this topic, and, uh, but there was a JAMA article that, you know, that really impressed me, showing that uh, uh, people who follow a Mediterranean diet see all of their health indicators improve. Uh, weight, uh, waistband, uh, blood pressure, cholesterol, uh, inflammatory markers, uh, triglycerides. And there's not a single medication that could do that. You'd need to take about four medications to get the same, same effect. Uh, that's just with one change in diet. So it is a very powerful diet. And, and I have to add that very recently, and I didn't have this study when, when I wrote the book, but very recently, a study was published in Journal Cancer, that is published by the American Cancer Society. It was published two or three weeks ago, which found that in women with breast cancer, stage two breast cancer, so it has already uh, reached their um, lymph nodes, uh, when they follow a regimen that includes just a reduction in fat, not a dramatic reduction in fat, just a reduction in saturated fat, in fact, 
So they get closer to a Mediterranean diet, if you will. Uh, they, uh, they're educated about having more physical activity. And then the main intervention is actually stress reduction. Uh, these women are followed for 11 years with this program that really looks very similar to what I was able to put together in, in this book, Anti-Cancer. And when they're followed for 11 years, they, they notice that uh, at the end of that period, there was a 55% reduction in mortality, which is enormous. I don't think we have many drugs that reach that benefit. That's so extraordinary. Those who followed more than one in five uh, of the sessions of the edu- educational program, uh, the benefit was a 68% reduction in mortality. Just absolutely stunning. So it reminds us that quite simple interventions, not as extreme as the ones that Dean Ornish has pushed, can have a tremendous uh, benefit for survival. Moving on, we could spend a lot of time on nutrition, and, and the book is really extraordinary in the specificity uh, of the science that you provide that I think will help thoughtful people make uh, very positive decisions about their diet. So we could spend our whole hour on that. But you also have a chapter, a very important chapter, called The Anti-Cancer Mind. Uh, and you talk about um, healing helplessness, um, and this brings us to, uh, well, many rich questions that you've addressed, but as a psychiatrist, um, you became very interested in, uh, anxiety and depression and discovered a, uh, a therapy for trauma, anxiety, and depression called EMDR. Could you talk a little about EMDR? Let me first say maybe a couple comments about um, stress and cancer, because uh, as you addressed in, in your remarkable book, in, in Choices in Healing, this is a very difficult topic and about which there's much confusion. And uh, my read, which is, I think, quite similar to, to the one you uh, uh, laid out in your book, is that stress uh, does not cause cancer. And there are many studies finding that uh, you know, people who have experienced a high stress in their life uh, do not have more cancer than others. Absolutely. So it's, it's a tricky issue uh, because most people actually think that uh, their cancer is related to their stress level. So how do you reconcile these two things? And I think I was able to uh, find in the scientific literature a way to reconcile these, these two different uh, perspectives. And it's rather simple. There are some animal studies that show that when animals are stressed and made powerless, where they become despondent, then their body is much less able to resist the process of cancer when they're grafted with a tumor, for example. However, if they're exposed to the same stressors, but they're given some opportunity to uh, feel like they have some competence, that they can do something about their lives to improve it a bit, not dramatically, not control the stress completely, but have a sense that they can better their lives anyhow in spite of the stressor, then what you see is that there's an improvement in their ability to resist cancer. So it's quite remarkable. And it would explain that if you're only looking at stress and you're lumping together those who become despondent and those who actually find a way to, uh, you know, puddle through and uh, get on top of some of their life and do not feel despondent, then you're not going to see any effect. But if you're teasing it out and uh, take a side a group of people who do become despondent, then the data becomes quite clear that hopelessness, helplessness, powerlessness 
is correlated not with the causing of cancer, but with a uh, promotion of an existing tumor. makes them grow faster and makes cancers be uh, more severe. So that's my read of, of the literature. So then the question becomes, what can you do to help people not be helpless and despondent? And this is where oncologists, I think, feel themselves quite helpless. They don't know what to do, so they prefer not to talk about this whole issue. And they prefer to latch on to studies that would suggest there is no effect of stress on cancer because it makes, uh, you know, they, they don't have to feel helpless themselves that way. Uh, so I became very interested in, in methods that can help people move out of helplessness, and EMDR is one of these. So EMDR, uh, one I remember very vividly uh, when you introduced me to EMDR, and uh, you have a colleague who lives up north of us in Bolinas, uh, uh, a woman, extraordinary woman named Francine Shapiro, who, who founded the study of EMDR. Tell us a little about Francine Shapiro and how she discovered EMDR. Yes, well, the, the idea of EMDR is that when people have experience of a, a powerful traumatic event, um, that sometimes it gets locked in the nervous system in the form of a dysfunctional memory that is not digested by our, our brain in the way that normal unpleasant things uh, disturb us for a few days, but then eventually we get beyond them. So when, when the trauma is too strong, then it's not digested, and it continues to manifest itself in the form of uh, uh, nightmares or of uh, reminding us of vivid images at times when we don't want to, them to come back, uh, and triggering emotions of irritability, of anger, uh, when they're not appropriate to the situation. And so this is very typical of the condition we call post-traumatic stress in, in psychiatry. And what Francine Shapiro discovered about 20 years ago now is that when you have people uh, visualize or, and re-experience some aspects of their painful traumatic memories and at the same time have them move their eyes back and forth in the way that eyes move spontaneously behind closed eyelids during our dream states, then it seems to allow the brain to trigger this uh, digestion meta- uh, mechanism that moves the traumatic memory from a dysfunctional memory to a regular memory. And and what we see during EMDR sessions is uh, very often within a single session, people say, oh, my God, it's over. I can now think back on this past event, you know, this rape or this loss of a child or whatever, and look at it as uh, it's just a story. It's just something that happened to me. It doesn't hurt anymore when I think about it. This is what's so remarkable about EMDR. And, you know, it seems so ludicrous that you would be able to help people by having them move their eyes back and forth. And when I first heard about this, I thought, well, this is one alternative approach that I will never spend any time even trying to understand or worry about. And uh, nowadays I actually teach it at the University of Pittsburgh to uh, psychiatry residents because it is one of the most powerful things I've seen in medicine. And indeed, uh, there are now, you know, 18 controlled studies uh, documenting the benefits of EMDR and uh, more than five meta-analyses that have been completed to show that it actually does work. And yet there's still extraordinary resistance to EMDR within the medical community. Right. I think it's to a large degree because uh, we don't exactly understand how this does work. 
and it does not look plausible that it should work. So it's hard to uh, get someone like me, you know, like uh, uh, to who is a, a very rational scientist, to even look at uh, a, a treatment like that. And I, uh, you know, I, I'm making headways. I, I'm really happy that I've been able to teach it for several years now at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, and convincing researchers who thought of themselves as extremely skeptical and hard-nosed, uh, and who now, uh, you know, die-hard the MDR therapist and who I hope will start to get a real um, new uh, scientific studies going, hopefully with uh, functional MRI and PET scanning, so that we, uh, within a few years we'll understand more about the mechanism. But I tell you, my, my personal conviction is that the day we will find the mechanism through which EMDR works, that Francine Shapiro will get the Nobel Prize in Medicine. I'm talking to David Servan-Schreiber, the author of Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life. We'll be back in just a moment. So, David, coming back again to our conversation about EMDR as an approach to trauma and anxiety, uh, I must say... uh, I had a very powerful experience with you with EMDR. We were sitting in my living room in Bolinas. Uh, uh, you had come to visit us over Christmas a few years ago. And we were talking about EMDR, and I mentioned that I had a lifelong area of trauma around my navel um, that I attributed to having been uh, really severely tickled in a very uh, hostile, hostile way by somebody who was taking care of me when I was uh, about three years old. And you asked if I wanted to try EMDR, try a session, and we did one. Uh, And again, it was what you described. Uh, uh, You asked me to uh, uh, remember what had happened, remember it as powerfully as possible. And then uh, we began the rapid eye movement. You, You had me follow your finger uh, in a rapid eye movement series. And when my eyes got tired, then you, you did it by tapping on my knees instead of uh, uh, using my eyes. But the bottom line was that after one session of EMDR, uh, ever since, uh, there has been a tremendous reduction in this experience of trauma. Um, and I still have a little residual left, which probably is because we didn't do enough follow-up sessions, but it's very, very modest compared to what it was before. So I've had the direct experience and uh, talked to Francine Shapiro, and I think for me one of the most uh, troubling things about the resistance to EMDR in the medical community is that we have all these veterans coming back in the United States from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan who are truly traumatized and whose traumas can uh, last a lifetime in profoundly destructive ways, and uh, they're not being given access to EMDR. Right. Well, it makes a lot of us very sad. Uh, you know, those of us who work with this method and who've seen the, how, how much uh, people who have, have had severe traumas can benefit, makes us very sad how hard it is to get it through uh, the system. But, you know, it's the same thing with everything I talk about with respect to cancer, really. You know, the, that study I just mentioned to you, 
68% reduction in mortality following stage 2 breast cancer. If there was a drug that could do that, it would be malpractice not to prescribe it. But because it is about stress reduction and diet and exercise, I don't think anybody's even heard about the, the damn study. Um, you know, they, it hasn't been on the news. Uh, there, there's not even an editorial in, in, the, in the journal Cancer that published it to, uh, uh, to talk about the study. So it is very hard to get those methods uh, within the, the conventional practice of medicine. And this is what I now dedicate my, uh, my professional activity to uh, trying to achieve. You also have been extraordinarily courageous. In fact, you and Andy Weil are the only two people working uh, in the field of mind-body medicine, broadly speaking, who also really address environmental factors. And in your book, uh, there are two areas that you address. One is uh, chemicals and the environment, and the other is a a whole final segment, uh, as the book went to press, on 10 precautions for cell phone use. So let's just start with cell phone use because that uh, is uh, an area that we've both uh, uh, thought considerably about. What convinced you uh, to take an additional risk, really, and talk about cell phone use when uh, there's virtually a, a, a wall of silence, for the most part, about the potential threats of cell phones? There's a wall of silence about a lot of these environmental questions, as I'm sure you, you've encountered. Um, well, what convinced me is, uh, uh, you know, that, that I was, I've been giving a lot of lectures to professionals, but also to the public about my book about anti-cancer, A New Way of Life. And um, that question kept coming up. People kept asking me, what do you think about the risk of cell phones? And... I realized that, um, you know, for myself, uh, having lived with a, a brain tumor for 16 years, I, I had developed a set of um, protective practices, for lack of a better word, you know, so that I, I would reduce my exposure. But I had never formalized this, and, and uh, I'd never gone deep into the uh, literature on the topic uh, to make uh, that set of recommendations something that could be give it to other people than just me. And uh, uh, that's why I decided at one point, well, I really ought to look into this uh, more deeply. And uh, I was fortunate that around that time, uh, people you have worked with and I, I think have been egged on by the, the collaborator for health and the environment uh, had developed a, a, a remarkable scientific report. Cindy Sage, right. Cindy Sage Cindy and the Bio Initiative. And, and uh, Hardell. Right. And Leonard Hardell had, right. had worked on the uh, scientific report on uh, radiation, uh, radiomagnetic fields, and their health effects. And so I uh, delved into that. I was stunned once again about the amount of scientific evidence that existed and that nobody talked about. And then, so the bottom line about cell phones was extremely simple. First, they penetrate the brain. There's no question. Much more so in children than adults, but they do penetrate brain in adults. Uh, second, they have effects on the biology within the brain or anywhere on the body. Nobody can uh, deny that. And third, this is where the crux of the matter is. Uh, if, if you look at the vast majority of studies that have looked at the effects on cancer in people of cell phones have found no effect. But when you look closely, you realize that all of these studies have been done with exposures of less than five years. Uh, 
practically all of them less than 10, the vast majority less than 5, some of them less than 2. Now, this is totally ridiculous when it comes to cancer. Just think about the tobacco issue. If you had people smoke a pack of cigarettes a day for 10 years, you would see no effect whatsoever on lung cancer. So how could you conclude from studies that have looked at less than five years of exposure that there is no danger? I realized all of a sudden that all of these studies were, in essence, useless. You, you could uh, put, set them aside and not even look. And then the few studies that had looked at 10 years of exposure or more found roughly a doubling of the rate of brain tumors on the side on which people use their phones. So that is very concerning because you would not even see that with cigarette smoking. And if that is true, and we don't know yet for sure, we don't have enough of these studies, but if that is true, then we may be dealing with an extraordinarily um, consequential technology in terms of health risks. And so I thought that it was imperative uh, to use the precautionary principle and tell people, look, we don't know what cell phones do for sure, but there's enough worry there that you definitely should know about the kind of things you can do to protect yourself. We're not going to stop using cell phones. I mean, I know that you don't have one, <laughs> uh, uh, but it's a hard thing to live without a cell phone. I think most people are, you know, I have a brain tumor, I have a cell phone, but we can learn how to have a cell phone and dramatically reduce our, uh, our health risks. And this is what I wanted to get across. And you suggest to people use the speakerphone mode, keep the device away from your body. Uh, there's a hands-free kit with an air tube, which seems to transmit fewer electromagnetic waves. And the wireless Bluetooth headset, um, according to your data, has less than a hundredth of the electromagnetic emissions of a cell phone. That's right. Uh, so uh, those are some of the things that and you suggest. And some rather simple things, like, you know, don't replace your landline with a cell phone, which a lot of people are doing now. Uh, don't do that. Right. Uh, if people call you on your cell phone, hang up, you know, tell them, I'm calling you back, and call them back from your landline. Don't have a one-hour, two-hour conversation on your cell phone. These are the you know, simple things we can tell people to do. And I think that given the data, we have to tell people. You know, the other thing that, that is so extraordinary about this area of risk is that there's something like a billion people using cell phones around the world now. So even if it turns out that the increased cancer risk is relatively modest compared to, say, tobacco, the size of the effect will be just enormous. That's right. Yeah. And so it looks like it may be more than tobacco. And it may be really very substantial. It is, it is a real concern. Right. I want to add one, one thing about environmental risk, because, again, this is an area where, you know, no physician um, uh, will venture. And, and whereas I feel as a physician and, you know, seeing cancer patients frequently, that there really are things they ought to know. The, one of the recent studies, again, I didn't have this when I wrote the book. I wish I did. Um, found that uh, bisphenol A, which is a, a chemical that leaks out of, of plastic when it is, uh, it is in the contact of hot liquids, as in a uh, water boiler in your kitchen, or you know, the people boil, uh, warm up liquids in, in the microwave oven or, or in, um, uh, in baby bottles. Uh, well, this bisphenol A, at the level that uh, is achievable from just being, you know, liquid being in contact with plastic, when it gets into your body, uh, counteracts the benefits of chemotherapy for breast cancer. 
There's an animal study showing that. But again, you know, we don't have it in humans, but it would be unethical to do this study in humans, so you, you can't really do it. Um, but I would say, based on that evidence, you know, they, they used three different chemotherapy agents, and they found that bisphenol A, at these very low levels in the body, uh, completely blocked the benefits of three different chemotherapy agents that operated through three completely different mechanisms in the body, uh, which raises the possibility that perhaps bisphenol A uh, also blocks the benefits of radiotherapy, for example. Um, Then people ought to know, during treatment at the very least, if you have cancer and you're being treated for cancer, do not expose yourself to hot liquids that have been in contact with hard plastics. And, you know, if we, you and I, don't say this, nobody's going to say it. I, I can't imagine any oncologist today in the country uh, telling this to their patients. But the message has to get out. Let's turn now to your very important chapter on the anti-cancer environment. Um, And you start the book, actually, early on by citing a a study of uh, twins uh, and um, talk about um, the inheritance of cancer risk. So let's let's start there. What does the twins' research show about the inheritance of risk factors for cancer? The one one study I mentioned is the one of adopted children at birth which I think is the most striking one. Uh, the, um, the twin studies show that you know, people with identical genes only have about a 50% um, uh, joint risk of cancer, meaning that uh, identical genes with the, uh, does not, you know, if your, your twin has cancer, you only have a 50% chance of getting cancer with the same genes. So it does confirm that genes only play uh, a limited role in the risk of cancer. The most striking studies about adopted children at birth and they looked at um, people, children in Denmark, where there's a very good uh, birth registry and, and follow-up registry throughout life of uh, illnesses. They looked at people whose parents had cancer very early in life, aggressive cancers, where the parents died before age 50 of cancer. Well, they found that uh, the cancer risk of children adopted at birth was that of their adoptive parents, not the risk of their biological parents. Now, you have to think that through for a second, but it means that what gets transmitted from parents to children in terms of cancer risk is habits, not genes. And I think nobody's ever heard that. And this is a New England Journal of Medicine study, uh, and most people run around thinking that cancer is a matter of, uh, you know, bad luck in, in the, your, the genetic lottery. It's exactly the opposite. Uh, the genetic lottery plays very little of a role. Most Cancer scientists, in fact, agree that genes play at most uh, a role in 15% of cancer, 1-5, which is a very small number. The 85% of cancers would be determined by non-genetic factors. This study confirms that. Uh, Parents give us bad habits, not bad genes, in terms of uh, affecting our cancer risk. Now, that's the very important starting point. And as you know, most people in the uh, cancer community would say yes, 85% of cancers are environmentally determined primarily. But they would go on to argue that the major determinants are diet, exercise, um, um, and things like that, Uh, cigarette smoking, Smoking, of course, above all. Um, But they would insist that uh, a very old study uh, by Dal and Pito 
that estimated that uh, chemicals uh, contribute less than 5% to cancer incidence remains the best uh, estimate today. What is your response to that um, uh, analysis uh, that, uh, 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 that so many people hold to, that chemicals only contribute uh, at most 5% to cancer incidence? Well, it's as you know, it is extremely hard to put a number on, on the uh, you know the, chemi- the contribution of chemicals, in part because they interact with uh, behavioral factors, so that you know people who uh, who don't smoke, who have a healthy lifestyle, will, will be if they're exposed to the same uh, cancer-promoting agents, for example, are much less likely to uh, show a risk of cancer than people who do smoke and who are obese and who don't exercise, okay? So all of these things, and and they tend to vary together. Uh, It's quite clear that people of lower socioeconomic status, for example, tend to smoke more, drink more, be more obese, exercise less, and be more exposed to environmental contaminants. So it's very hard to tease these things out. And uh, in general, I think the medical community, the scientific community, has preferred to you know, blame people for their bad habits rather than blame changes in the environment uh, for the uh, problems with cancer because uh, the environment makes us feel a little helpless and powerless, plus it threatens large industrial concerns. You talk in your book about the fact on a very specific chemical uh, you say a significant number of brain tumors such as mine are sensitive to xenoestrogens. A recent study found that wine country workers who are regularly exposed to pesticides and fungicides have an increased risk of brain tumors. Between 1963 and 1970, from age 2 to 9, I played in cornfields sprayed with atrazine surrounding our country house in Normandy. All my life until the day I was diagnosed with cancer, I drank milk and ate eggs, yogurt, and meat from animals fed with corn sprayed by pesticides. And you go on about all your exposures, and then you say, it's true that many other children from this reason didn't get sick, but how do you decide whether the risk was acceptable? Right. You know, we know that these pesticides in particular uh, act as hormones that uh, stimulate the growth of cells that uh, are hormone-sensitive, such as many cancers, particularly breast, but also prostate, ovarian, and it turns out brain. Uh, about 30% of brain tumors, like mine, are sensitive to these pesticides, well, these, horm- these uh, hormone effects, uh, which are stimulated by pesticides. So pesticides are a problem. A University of Seattle study found that uh, you know, the vast majority of, of children aged 2 to 5 who eat the conventional food diets, non-organic foods, uh, have high residues of pesticides in their urine every day of the study. And when they go to an organic diet, uh, the residues uh, go away. So that means that you know, every day their bodies are exposed, their little tiny bodies, age 2 to 5, are exposed to these pesticide residues that we know help promote. They may not be carcinogens themselves, but they help promote the growth of uh, at least existing cancers. So this is a major issue. It's not just now. It's not just an environmental issue because we've known these pesticides are, are bad for the environment for a long time. You know, they contaminate our, our waterways. They kill our fish. Uh, then they, uh, you know, they kill the birds that eat the fish. <laughs> it's a complicated process, and it does a lot of damage. But we now realize that uh, they might be killing our children. 
You start the book with a quote from René Dubose, the great uh, Rockefeller University scientist who discovered the first uh, antibiotic in clinical use and uh, introduced the concept of sustainable development. Um, uh, And the quote is, I have always felt that the only trouble with scientific medicine is that it is not scientific enough. Modern medicine will become really scientific only when physicians and their patients have learned to manage the forces of the body and the mind that operate via vis mediatrix naturae, the healing power of nature. And that quote really strikes me because one of the core themes in this conversation that we've been having is the number of areas, David, in which the problem we face is that scientific medicine is not scientific enough. It is not scientific enough to look at the role of nutrition in cancer. It is not scientific enough to look at the role of environmental contaminants in cancer. It is not scientific enough to look at the ways in which feelings of helplessness can be reduced by techniques like EMDR. And in all of these areas, what is going on is not that you and I are suggesting that people should do things that don't have scientific support but rather that the scientific community that deals with cancer and indeed with many other diseases has not been willing to take a really deep look at the scientific literature on these issues. That's exactly right. And I know this is where you and I see exactly alike. And this is what I loved about your book as well, you know, Choices in Healing, which was a great inspiration for me when I wrote mine, because this is, I think, our duty today is to challenge the scientific community to be more scientific. Not, uh, you know, we're, we're, I'm certainly not claiming that uh, the cure for cancer lies in uh, alternative methods and herbs and broccoli and, and jogging and breathing, you know. Uh, this is, uh, conventional medicine remains uh, indispensable and it saved my life. It saves lives every day. But it is not enough. And every cancer patient knows that. You know, we need more. And one of the major things that they need to explore, learn how to build on, is how to help each and everyone's body to fight more effectively to prevent cancer or to slow it down and stop it uh, if we already have it. Learn how to capitalize on this marvelous biology of our body, which is built to resist the process of disease. David, let's, uh, as we begin to come to the end of this conversation, I'd love to uh, go back to an extraordinary moment in my life, and I think in yours, which is the place where we met, and um, what happened that led you to write your two books. Could you just talk a little about how we met and uh, the role of that encounter uh, in your decision to write your books? I have a smile on my face as I think back on that moment, Michael. Uh, it was a very touching moment. I, I was a participant in your cancer help program on the, the newly established one on the East Coast at Smith Farm. And uh, I, in, in one of the, you have two sessions with with your uh, with the people who participate in the program where you do individual uh, interviews with them. And I think it was the first one maybe that we had. And, 
and uh, you ask me the question that you must ask every every single patient is you know what makes you want to be alive what what gets you going uh, do you have a project do you have something that you're looking forward to that kindles your inner uh, flame your your you know to keep burning and uh, as I thought about it I, I I had always wanted to write a book but I was very intimidated and, and thought you know this bigger project for me, and I wasn't good enough, and uh, um, uh, and then I, I sort of shyly told you that, you know, I had this sort of uh, unrea- an unrealizable uh, uh, dream of, of writing a book, and uh, uh, and when I, I noticed that as I talked about this, my heart was beating faster, and, and you said, you know, I like that, I like to hear that your heart is beating faster when, when you're talking about this project, and uh, David, I can tell you one thing: that you need to write this book, uh, and you know it still fills me with the warmth uh, as I say those words. I remember that moment because it gave me the strength, uh, the determination, the courage, the confidence. I guess mostly uh, to uh, to do it. And it, it, I think, in some ways, it has saved my life. It did give me that project that you know kept me going and that allowed me to transform my painful and sad experience of a, a relapse of my uh, uh, brain tumor at the time, eight years ago, into, um, into a very meaningful experience that uh, allowed me to help other people. And tell us what happened with that book once you published it. How many languages has it appeared in? How many people have been <laughs> touched sorry, by that, it? That was my first book on, on how to treat depression and anxiety without drugs or psychoanalysis. And um, with natural methods, and and that book was uh, you know, became a worldwide bestseller, and it sold 1.3 million copies. It was translated in 29 languages, so it was quite an extraordinary experience for you know this uh, little guy who didn't think he had it in him to uh, to put a book together. So it for me, I was as touched by that moment as you were, and to to have a sense that I made a tiny contribution to the extraordinary reach of uh, your work, uh, not only the first book on healing, but then, again, uh, how connected uh, we have been in the cancer work. Um, is just, uh, you know, one of the really important uh, friendships and relationships of my life, and I'm, I'm so grateful for it. Uh, in the in the few minutes we have left, uh, w- w- the part that we haven't talked about as much um, is the anti-cancer mind chapter, uh, and there was a section there that I found particularly interesting on um, the different the different minds uh, that we have, and uh, there's particularly a section on. Uh, the mantra and the rosary uh, that I thought was extraordinary. Uh, and you talk about, um, you talk about what uh, mantras or, or rosary uh, uh, repetitions can do uh, for human health. There's so many pieces of, of your work on mind-body that we could talk about, but that one is a particularly beautiful one. Could you just say a little bit about what you found about mantras and uh, related things? Well, one of the key controls of every biological function in the body is, is the so-called autonomic nervous system. 
which is the part of the nervous system we have no uh, conscious control over, but which controls heart rate and breathing and uh, blood pressure, but also the immune system and, and what the liver does and the kidneys and so on. And uh, that is uh, balanced by uh, two branches. One is an accelerator. Uh, it's called the sympathetic nervous system. The other one is sort of a brake, the parasympathetic nervous system. And when these two work in balance, everything inside the body seems to fall into harmony. But when they don't, when, uh, for example, it's like driving a car by pushing on the brake and the accelerator at the same time, uh, then everything in the body seems to go out of whack. And it turns out that we can now measure rather simply the state of balance between these two systems. And a researcher in, in Italy at the University of uh, Padua, Pavoa, I'm not sure how you say it in English, um, discovered that uh, old mantras and reciting the Catholic rosary, you know, in, in Latin, as it turns out, uh, induces a perfect breathing pattern that uh, triggers this uh, optimal balance between the two branches of the uh, autonomic nervous system, which then has consequences throughout the body. So I thought it was quite a remarkable discovery. It was published in the British Medical Journal, in fact, uh, uh, in 2003. You write, they concluded that everything that amplifies variations as happens in states of resonance or coherence described by Barnardi is associated with a number of health benefits, including better functioning of the immune system, reduction of inflammation, and better regulation of blood sugar levels. That's right. David Servan-Schreiber, it is such a joy to speak to you in Paris today as I sit in my living room in Bolinas, where we visited some years ago. Thank you for your extraordinary work, and thank you for being with us at the New School. Thanks so much, Michael. This is delightful. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website, where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.